A leak of a Supreme Court opinion with potentially historic outcomes. Continued funding to Ukraine as the war with Russia continues. The Fed's now taking on disinformation and a deadly bird flu that's sweeping the country and hitting Montana hard. We get into all of this and more in this episode of the Voices of Montana podcast. First, our U.S. Congressman Matt Rosendale stops by the studio to share his strong opinions on the federal government's new disinformation governance board, the controversy surrounding the nation's highest court, and more. Then later on, we have the Montana Department of Livestock State veterinarian Marty Zalewski come on to talk about the highly pathogenic avian flu outbreak, specifically how it's affecting us in Montana and the steps that are being taken to mitigate the outbreak. I say it a lot because it's so often the case. We have a jam-packed show here between these two guests, and I think you'll get a lot out of these discussions. Whether it's the looming decision on Roe v. Wade, the United States' involvement in the Russian-Ukrainian war, or the safety of your backyard chicken coop, this episode has some valuable insights that you won't want to miss. So this is Congressman Matt Rosendale in studio. So what are you going to do for Cinco de Mayo? It's not a big holiday on my book. I'll not, have to tell not, you that. not a big one. I'm, I'm uh, going to do my regular job today. Okay. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I, as I told you, I went to uh, Billings West High School already. I'm going to visit with an eye doctor in Laurel today. I'm going to work my way over to Bozeman and uh, meet with a uh, – a diplomat from France. I don't know even know how that got, ended up on the agenda, but it oh, is. Oh, uh, probably here from uh, for the World Trade Center that was uh, had a symposium yesterday. Yeah. I think the general council. My, my staff has has made me pledge to not start an international incident. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to do my very best to, to, to try to avoid that. Was that a verbal pledge or did you sign that? Document? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I, my fingers crossed behind my back. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, thanks for coming in. I appreciate that. Always good to be here. What a beautiful day. Man. No, it's going to get into the seventies today. And We've me, got moisture. Things are greening up. My I, I, look, I was in Glendive in Sydney on uh, Monday and Tuesday, so the agricultural community is a lot happier right now. It's we're, we're seeing some some light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, and uh, it's got to continue here, and it's got to be continue to be cool. That that will really well. Help. Yeah. Look, and we yeah. still have major challenges. I mean, we can't minimize the impact of these energy costs on our agricultural community. We can't minimize the impact of the fertilizer cost on our agricultural community. That's just very. It's devastating. How do you mitigate that? You can't. You yeah. can't. They they don't have the control over their uh, the sale of their products so much. Okay, They're, it's not like you can have a really really good competitive. Uh, bid process going on. I mean, obviously, there's a bid process, sure, and you can make some determinations about where and when you want to sell your grain and where and when you want to sell your calves. But but there's some very difficult um, sideboards, if you will, that restrict our producers on where and when they can sell. So so the marketplace is limited, and 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 the inputs that they have. Again, they don't have a lot of control over that, so it's um there's there's challenges taking place, but a little bit of rain sure goes a long way. Yeah, yeah, and that northeastern corner is really still really dry. They didn't get as much as as the rest, but I mean uh, that that eastern central eastern they got a couple of good dumpings, and and I oh, saw yeah. how much it helped uh, with a recent report. So that's cool. We're always knocking on wood and and, and praying for rain. You know, uh, keeping in in that vein here, there were some uh, hearings last week, uh, and, and maybe it was the week before. Uh, I think it was last week um, re- regarding processing plants mm-hmm. and the potential monopoly. Uh, and uh, so we, we had those processors 
um, in Washington D.C. Were they were they were they truthful? Were they held accountable? What uh, what's the story behind trying? Because you look at the cost of these inputs as you're talking about, right. and how much is being returned, especially in the cattle markets. Uh, right. There seems to be a lot missing there for the producer. Well, I had the uh, Montana stock growers come in and, and met with me in the office, and we had some really good conversations about what uh, can and and should be done, and and what shouldn't, and what they don't want to do. I mean, we we are obviously exporters of our beef, exporting outside of the state of Montana. We're not going to be able to consume it all. So uh, they just explained to me that we have to be very careful about what we're doing because they don't want to damage the big packers because right now um, these guys are, are contracting out because they are trying to keep that pipeline of product full as well. And and the population, okay, the, the herds sizes are shrinking. They're decreasing. And so we're going to see those prices going up. And when you start having these conversations about how long out you can contract for and things like that uh, with the packers, it, it starts presenting some challenges because there are people that start contracting now, whether it's their grain or their calves, certainly for um, this fall's crop, if you will. And there's already people that I've talked to that are contracting out for 23. And and so the transparency part of it is always a really, really big thing. And, and that does benefit people. Will there be um, will there be continued pressure, do you think? Or or is this sort of a release valve? I know that there I think there are certain AGs that, that there have cases that are moving forward regarding this. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, and then also the movement toward getting more processing plants online. That's that, big. That's happened in Montana. That has happened. And, and I will tell you, Miles Community College is actually uh, they have developed a curriculum for uh, meat cutters. And so we're, we're starting to fill that void of the meat cutters for the uh, smaller packers that are opening up around the state. And we're seeing them all over the state. I, I have visited. We just had the big one open up here in Billings. You've got one. Heck, I went to one um, over in Sydney. That's, a, a, that's a, a plant that they're going to expand. Steve Lunderby is yeah. doing a great job over there. Craig Steinbeiser. Yeah, I went to one down in Hamilton. So we've got all of these facilities that are I, – I went to one and visited down in Broadus. That all is going to – um, add the the additional competition uh, for the Packers. But at the end of the day, those Packers are, are pushing a lot, okay, of meat through them. And, and as the herd sizes shrink, they are going to have to offer higher prices. Montana Congressman Matt Rosendale is with us here. He served as a former state auditor and commissioner of securities, also in the state Senate uh, for a number of years, too. Freedom Caucus, Western Caucus, Border Security Caucus. We talk about that uh, frequently. and uh, Huge. Big um, problem. Yeah, um, do you approve of states that have said, okay, feds, you're not doing this job. We're going to get together and do it ourselves. They have to. The Constitution provides that they can do that. And there's very few things that the federal government is actually charged uh, to take care of constitutionally. But protecting our borders is numero uno, okay? And when I start hearing conversations uh, next week that they're going to bring another aid package of $33 billion for Ukraine, and we've got an open border, and, and we've got – 105,000 deaths that took place in our country last year from drug overdoses, most of which was fentanyl-related. We have an incredible invasion taking place on our own border right now. It's causing death, 
and it's causing uh, uh, destruction and suffering, whether it's from United States citizens or the illegals that are coming in. Those folks uh, are suffering as well. Absolutely. We need to take those funds and turn them into securing our border and to treating – Okay, the the people that are uh, having their substance abuse issues and and dealing with drug overdoses, we need to invest in our people. That's um, that's a very serious situation in the policy. It's just it's just a policy decision that can be turned around. I mean, this this can be turned around rather quickly, I think, and rather easily. Well, maybe not so easily, but one policy decision can remain in Mexico policy that in and of itself would start uh, closing down the floodgates. And and we have floodgates there right now. We are treating our Border Patrol agents like travel agents. When, when people are coming across the border, all they're doing is processing these people and turning them loose, and, and it is a problem. The, the morale within the CBP, uh, Customs and Border Patrol, is so low, Tom. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how they can retain anyone for employment any longer. It, it's really a bad situation down there. Well, and there was a rumor that uh, the VA was sending medical personnel down there. The VA uh, testified yesterday, and I guess we're, we're uh, up to date. Catch us up to date on yeah, that. So yeah, so I, I literally, when I started hearing those conversations, we have a big problem with VA right now, not delivering the benefits that they have promised our veterans, that our veterans certainly have earned. And I've seen billions of dollars being misdirected and, and not delivering those benefits. So as soon as I heard those stories that possibly we were going to start diverting some of the staff, and, and every veterans facility has staffing needs, no different than any company that I have talked to in the last six months, right? Okay. Why in the world would we start uh, taking staff from the veterans facilities and shipping it to the southern border? So I uh, yesterday had staff all keyed up to uh, question Secretary McDonough about this exact thing. And then we had Mayorkas, Homeland Security. Uh, he testified yesterday. And then they had um, a Veterans Affairs folks testify that they will not be sending um, – veterans uh, employees, veterans affairs employees down to the southern border. So once I had that that confirmation, that pledge made, then I felt like, okay, then I have to take them on their word. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and, but, uh, you know, th- that because they closed the Miles City. Um, uh, that was a whole different thing. It was yeah. a whole different thing, but it was staffing issues. It was a staffing issue. And and, and I will tell you that they uh, – I've turned up reports now. And we are still digging into that, okay. uh, that there was negligence that took place, and they removed those patients from that facility to make sure that they were safe and, and treated uh, properly. And so we are absolutely still looking into that. That was not part of the uh, closures that they were – evaluating across the nation this is a whole separate issue and and so um i originally everyone was thinking it was part of just this staffing issue and that's why a closure was taking place no that's not it there was there was actually some negligence that took place there and so there's people that are being relieved of duties and and i'm digging in find out what the heck is going on 
down in Miles City. That's good. They they need to have that uh, that watchful eye over it. Again, Montana Congressman Matt Rosendale, uh, Committee on Natural Resources, uh, Veterans Affairs Committee. Is a, yes. You know, we keep talking about that. Ranking member for the Subcommittee on Technology Modernization. And you have addressed that recently, uh, as of I think this week or maybe it was last week again. I've been um, addressing that for a year, okay, Tom. Yeah. For uh, a year. Yeah. Talk about the, the – well, let's see. We've got about two minutes here. Okay. Two minutes. I'll give you the from, two minutes. Yeah. Do it. Okay. Yeah. So, so Secretary McDonough told – Told me two years ago when we met that he was going to make sure they had already invested two and a half billion dollars into this system. That if it was not functioning properly, that number one, he would not introduce it at any new facilities until it was fully functional in in Spokane, Washington. And I met with him, talked with him, and I and again I took him on his word. Well, we still have major problems. We have. Uh, Literally, veterans' lives being risked because of the the information is not being uh, conveyed properly through this system, and they still are pushing to roll it out in Walla Walla, Washington, and Columbus, Ohio, and I continue to fight against introducing this in other areas until we have a fully functional system. and And for the life of me, I can't understand two and a half billion dollars later why we don't and two and a half billion dollars and, and and about two years we don't have a system that's working right somebody is getting rich off of our veterans back and i and i again continue to say they're using this as an experiment and unfortunately they're using our veterans as guinea pigs and i and i just i fight against it every time we have a hearing there was another issue, and good job. We got actually another about forty-five seconds left here that relates to that um, in terms of uh, expediting some temporary claims for veterans, and that wasn't being done uh, correctly. Yeah, yeah. So when a veteran uh, is hospitalized, what happens is I, I think this is the one we're talking about that the uh, they are able to get uh, classified as being fully disabled. So if they have a a partial disability. Once they get hospitalized, they're able to get full disability for the time that they're hospitalized. And the, they were not getting that, that compensated back properly in, in a speedy fashion. And, of course, it's causing you know financial hardship. So we're trying to get that straightened out. Matt Rosendale here from Montana for Montana. It's Voices of Montana. Back with more in a bit. Busy is good. I'm feeling stronger. I can work harder, longer since I quit. When treating drug and alcohol addiction, it is a myth that you cannot quit tobacco as well. In fact, those who quit tobacco during treatment are 25% more likely to stay sober. Decrease your risk of relapse while saving money and improving your health. Quit tobacco now. I'm finally feeling better. Call the Montana Tobacco Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Brought to you by the Montana Department of Public Health and Human Services. Welcome back. It's from Montana for Montana, Voices of Montana. Matt Rosendale is in studio. I want to get to this. I want to save some time. The disinformation governance board uh, want to talk about this leak as well. Uh, let's take a call, though. Going up to the Flathead, Kalispell, KOFI, 1180 AM. The Boomer up there and 104.3 FM. And Steve, thanks for calling. You're on the air with uh, Matt Rosendale. Oh, thanks for taking my call, Matt. Uh you and I connect on Facebook Messenger now and then about hunting, and uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you, I didn't get to go out and get my turkey tag filled this spring, Steve. I see oh, you did already. Yeah, you. Thank you, Matt. Listen, I just wanted—I won't stay long because got other calls, but I want to thank you for your representation for us in Montana. As you know, I'm a retired deputy sheriff and very pro law enforcement. And not only do you uh, care for us, but I know that uh, when there's a funeral, you're there. I know you attempt to get legislation to 
increased benefits for an officer killed on the line of duty. And uh, just on a personal level, I want to thank you, Matt. And another, uh, then I'll go ahead and say goodbye, but I like what uh, you do for the Jewish community here because I happen to be one of the few Jewish people in Montana. So thank you again. For all you do, Steve. Steve thank you yeah. too, by the way. For yeah, being thanks on for calling in. And, and yeah. look, I, I will tell you, the uh, everybody is is pretty much everybody is aware that we had our redistricting, and I'm running just on the eastern side, which is still they say eastern half is like no, 40 out of the 56 counties is, is where I'm is still running. Yeah, 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 I'm still running in, and I have an awful lot of folks that are around the rest of the state that I have strong, strong relationships with, and and. I mean, I love the people I represent, and it's very easy for me to drive around and make sure that I stay in touch with everybody. and And it's going to be difficult to um to lose fifty percent of my um, constituent base because I've got a lot of really really strong relationships, and I, and I just find that. And as I'm being realistic, and I look forward. Uh, those folks are still going to call me up, and, and I cannot – I'm not going to be able to turn them away. I mean right. they're, they're, they're people that I, that I love and serve. Yeah. Steve, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Any final, any final thoughts? One other – yeah, one other thing I wanted to mention is that tonight there is a uh, candidate's debate at the Northwest uh, Montana Museum in downtown Kalispell, so I believe some of the candidates will be there. I'm pretty sure Ryan and Larry Todd and – Dr. Al will be there. So uh, just for your listeners out there, if people want to see where the folks are coming from, uh, and I know they're all constitutional supporting, uh, just keep that in mind, okay? Thanks, Steve. I appreciate that. Thank you, that. Steve. Yep. Um, and, and about debates, um, how many um, how many is fair? How many do you do? I know you get requests all over the yeah, place. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, I've got a day job now. <laughs> a day <laughs> that, and night job. Day I know and night like. job, yeah. which actually is uh, – I was talking to my scheduler yesterday, and she said, you know, you, they have you scheduled to be in D.C. doing legislative work three weeks out of – each month from from now on through as far as she sees. So it's going to keep me over there a lot more than I would like. Um, I was very fortunate to get back over this week. And and so that's up to the scheduling thing. I mean, that we have to figure out when, when I'm not obligated to be in Washington, when I can be back here. And I will gladly look, I will gladly debate anybody when it comes to the agricultural community, when it comes to energy independence for our nation, when it comes to delivering affordable, high-quality health care. Folks want to have that conversation? I've done these things. So this isn't – I'm not speaking in theory. I can actually say here's what you need to do to accomplish it. But I will also be more than glad to have a discussion about I think it's a priority for us to secure our own nation's security, which includes taking care of that southern border, before we go and start spending billions of dollars somewhere else. As as unfortunate as these situations are, and then people cannot ignore the things that take place that bring us to a point where Russia feels so empowered that they can go without without fear whatsoever and invade another nation. Why is that? It's because we 
pulled the permit on the Keystone XL pipeline, and we're importing 600,000 barrels a day of crude oil from Russia. It's because we relinquished the uh, sanctions that we had on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and allowed them to then fund their military machine by selling their energy throughout uh, Western Europe. 30% of their economy, their GDP – of Russia's comes from their energy sales. Mm-hmm. It's because we had such an absolutely historic blunder of a withdrawal from Afghanistan where we left billions of dollars of fully functioning military weapons there. All of this, okay, is what led us to this point. If we the, – the Biden administration had to come in and kept the sanctions in place, imposed more sanctions on Russia, then we probably wouldn't be having a discussion right now about how do we get them out of the Ukraine. And we better take notice and, and reinforce our true NATO allies that we have obligations with, including weapons and, and our troops and making sure that they're trained and prepared and do the exact same thing in Taiwan or we're going to see more of this type of activity out of bad, bad players around the world. Regulation or censorship? We'll come on back and talk about this new disinformation governance board with Montana Congressman Matt Rosendale after these headlines from Brian Bennett. Why? Just think about it. Why is the number one selling brand of chainsaws not sold at Lowe's or the Home Depot? We can give you over 10,000 reasons. That's how many authorized local steel dealers you can find across the country. Visit one and you'll find a range of dependable gas and battery-powered tools from trimmers to blowers. And you'll find service from experienced professionals. Real steel. Find yours at SteelUSA.com. Lowe's and Home Depot are trademarks of their respective companies. All right, didn't save enough time to put these things on the plate, but there's always uh, lots of stuff to talk about, Matt, and I appreciate your, your expertise on this, too. Um, this disinformation board, uh, obviously we see and we understand that there are problems uh, associated with social media. Uh, but how, how do you address those without going overboard, which a lot of people think that uh, has happened with this disinformation governance board? Is the, the, it regulation or censorship? It's, it's censorship. And, and the problems that we see with social media is how selective they have been about who they want to silence and who they're willing to use a megaphone. It is literally that simple. And, and for me to hear about a disinformation board that is going to be run and monitored by the Democrats in Washington, D.C., it should frighten everybody across this country. I mean, that is literally, well, you know, when are they going to go out in the public square and start burning books? This is really, really bad. I think back to the FISA courts, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, okay? The FISA courts have been used against American citizens. So, so Mayorkas came out and announced that he wanted to, to uh, per, uh, authorize this disinformation board, right? And then the next day, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So they started getting all of this pushback, and he says, I didn't explain it very well. That sounds like Barack Obama talking about Obamacare. If I just keep explaining it, people are going to like it. It's going to be okay. And he said, we're only going to use it to, to uh, surveil and to uh, screen information from, from foreign entities. BS. I'm not buying it, and I don't like it a single bit. And and again, going back to the FISA courts, that's what they told us about that. And meanwhile, we have found and discovered that they have used those very 
uh, entities to surveil United States citizens, and I've got a major problem with it. I am so glad to see that Elon Musk has has put his offer and is purchasing Twitter so that we can have somebody else that's going to be competing out there and and literally using these things as the platform that they were intended to be. They are not supposed to have censorship, and they were granted immunity if they were just acting as a platform, and they have become publishers, which means that they are screening, they are censoring, and unfortunately, the people that own these uh, entities are are leftist, and they're, and they're suppressing and silencing the conservative voice, and it's wrong. May Orcas had, had said even that um – that we're not we are not monitoring uh, uh, Americans this on the heels of the CDC coming out and being found that they were monitoring Americans during the lockdown. Absolutely. Absolutely. They were tracking. They were literally tracking where you were going. And, and there was people that were saying that that was happening. And everybody called them tinfoil hat folks. And you don't know what you're talking about. And it all turned out to be very accurate. You know, President Trump said, there's people that are wiretapping me. There's, the, you know, they're gathering information on me. And everybody's like, ah, that's, you know, that's Trump. Okay. We found out. Yeah, they were. Yeah. They, yeah, they were. My Orcus, unfortunately, I have zero confidence in anything he says. A year ago, he was telling us they had a plan. They had a plan for the southern border, how to secure it. And everybody says, well, you know, what's going on down there? And I came out then and said he does have a plan, and he's implementing it. Uh-huh. And he is, has an open border plan. <laughs> that is what his plan is. And now we've had millions of encounters. We've had 700,000 getaways. We've got – 42 terrorists roaming our country. He doesn't even know where they are, and that's the ones he knows about. How many others were mixed in with that 700,000 that got across the border undetected? Good to see you, Matt. Thanks for the work. Thanks thanks for having me on. Have a great day. Montana continues right after this. During the pandemic, many of us postponed healthcare appointments, but now it's time to catch up on checkups. From well visits, annual exams and immunizations, to preventative screenings and scans to catch issues early, to visits with specialists for chronic conditions, and the dentist and eye doctor too. Let's all focus on health and get healthcare appointments back on the calendar. Start by making a healthcare appointment today. Learn more at facebook.com slash health 406. Montana Department of Public Health and Human Services. We're going to move on next. Dr. Marty Zalewski, the state veterinarian who runs the Animal Health and Food Safety Division from the Montana Department of Livestock. There's been an avian flu uh, outbreak. It's been detected. Backyard chicken coops beware, right? Um, Well, uh, how is this going to affect Montana? And what are some of those mitigation efforts? Uh, Let's talk to our state veterinarian, Dr. Marty Zalewski. And Marty, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Hanging in. Hanging in. Appreciate Good. that. Um, avian influenza reported in poultry in Montana. Uh, this one is um, – this influenza can cause a high mortality rate. Uh, how how bad is the problem or what is the status of the problem in Montana? And then let's go on to how you mitigate this. Well, so uh, the problem is, uh, you know, it's, it's limited to poultry really, right? So the we have, we have a somewhat of a novel – situation this year where we have uh, eight counties that have diagnosed high path or highly pathogenic avian influenza in domestic poultry of one species or another. And in many of those premises and in many of those facilities, the disease has caused really high mortalities to the point where 
um, you know, sometimes only five or ten percent of the of the poultry um, actually are um, survive the, the outbreak. Right. That's that, uh, that's about the only only solution out there is um, is depopulate the the flocks. Yeah. So the yeah we so typically what because the disease is so fatal um, we don't have oftentimes there are not that many birds to depopulate. I see. Uh, you know when we get a call from a backyard poultry grower that might have twenty twenty birds, uh, but it, you know they might see uh, some significant death loss that climbs over the the duration of a of a couple of days. By the time we get laboratory results the next day. Uh, oftentimes there might be only you know one or three or four birds left in 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 that group of twenty. So it's uh, for for gallinaceous birds. These are these are the kind of heavy-bodied birds like like um, uh, chickens and turkeys and pheasants. Um, those uh, that this disease is really is really highly highly fatal. And uh, and it's mostly limited to that or restricted to that migratory waterfowl. And as you mentioned, the poultry. Uh, Montana is the twenty-fifth state to report these cases um what what does that indicate i mean uh, um, do they typically uh, start elsewhere and and find their do they spread fast like that or uh, how, how does this work yeah currently there are 32 affected states with uh, with this outbreak uh this year um yeah the the disease is spread by by migrate by migrating birds uh, particularly waterfowl but not exclusively um and influenza is is found uh, regularly in 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 wild birds, just like influenza is found in people in in human populations. But uh, on 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 occasion, every few years or so, there's a mutation that makes this disease a lot more severe and 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 kind of converts from kind of low kind of background noise to something that's that, that, that that's highly pathogenic. How does it affect Montana? Do we have a lot of poultry producers here? I know we uh, the, the comment about backyard chicken coops, and 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 there are a ton of those. Uh, in our rural state, well, of course, you know, uh, uh, growing poultry in your backyard is is kind of, a, I think, to some degree, a, a Montana hobby. And and I, I I had backyard poultry for for a number of years myself, and so that loss is really really significant. Um, the the poultry production in the state of Montana, relative to the nation, when you compare our production to to, to states like Minnesota, Indiana, and and the Carolinas, is really fairly small. But it's but it has dramatically grown over the last several years. It's um, it's more than doubled over the last five years as far as production is concerned. Wow. Um, so and then then mitigating this uh, or um, as far as our, our um, uh, backyard chicken coop, so to speak, and uh, and those kinds of more domestic types of production, um, are there things that they can do specifically? The number one. Uh, precaution or the number one activity that we think uh, folks should consider is really separating their domestic poultry from wild birds, uh, particularly waterfowl, but really any wild birds. Um, in every single case, um, and at this point we've diagnosed nine separate uh, premises uh, facilities with, with uh, high-path avian influenza, in every one of those cases there has been documented contact with wild birds and typically wild waterfowl. So really maintaining that separation is, is really top priority. And so none of us want to bring our chickens in in the spring just as it's getting nice. It really may be the most, you know, the, the, the best thing we can do for them in the short term. And recognizing that this is a really a seasonal threat, it should go away uh, by early June. So we're talking about five or six weeks at the most. We hope that this risk persists. 
the um, th- there are um, uh, like the Hunterite colonies. Um, they produce a, a, a lot of poultry. What what are their precautions, or what is the communication with with groups like that? Well, they're yeah they they do have they're probably responsible or they are responsible for the for the growth of of egg production in the state of Montana um, over the last several years. Uh, the the good news is that their laying facilities are really highly biosecure, um, and and they in, including changing clothing, restricting access to the layer facilities, um, and those types of things. So we are fortunate that while. Um, while there have been some uh, premises that have been kind of involved in the outbreak, none of the laying poultry actually showed symptoms or actually were sick from the from HPAI or from high path avian influenza. Dr. Marty Zaluski is with the state veterinarian, runs the Montana Animal Health and Food Safety Division from the Montana Department of Livestock. Here as we continue on with this, this avian flu um, influenza, um, again, as you talk about it coming from waterfowl and... That becomes uh, more than just a state problem. Uh, I guess this initiated or uh, uh, first broke out in South Carolina in February. Um, is is I guess the uh, I look at that and waterfowl can go across borders. Um, you you can't track them. You can't trap them. Uh, so so is it just sort of uh, they have to play it out sort of thing. Yeah, unfortunately, there's not really a lot we can do to mitigate the problem from, you know, from the sky, right? So yeah. uh, these these birds are going to migrate um, in, in really either the, the central or the Pacific flyway. Um, it's a north to south type of direction, if, as folks are aware. They're going seasonally. Um, you know, they have been exposed. A lot of them have been exposed and carry this virus. And 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 these waterfowl or these wild birds are not nearly as susceptible to to avian influenza, um, high path avian influenza as domestic poultry are. Oh. But but one thing that's really interesting this year is actually we've been seeing a lot more wild bird mortalities than we have in previous outbreaks. And so this particular strain seems to be especially virulent. Is there a danger to humans? There is no danger to humans at this point. Um, the CDC does not believe, has, has stated this is not a public health concern. Uh, food safety is not impacted. Um, so there's a lot that we can be thankful for. Uh, but there is the potential for a mutation uh, that could potentially create a, a, you know, a, a human or a virus as dangerous to humans, which is one of the reasons why we are fairly you know, aggressive in, in stamping out this disease when we find it. Wow, that's a that's an interesting aspect of this, Marty. I, um, uh, the, that potential, um, although it's never been realized, um, that that probably sets the stage for a lot of things, doesn't it? Well, it does, and in fact, we think that, that we think that the 1918 pandemic that that killed 50 million people or so uh, was actually a recombinant avian influenza virus that combined mm-hmm. with with a swine or a pig influenza. Um, genetic material and, and created a, a strain that actually was able to not only infect people but also be passed from one person to another. So it's that kind of, it's those kinds of, uh, you know, genetic, uh, that kind of gen- genetic reassortment that, that kind of keeps us a little bit nervous. And, and again, is one of the reasons why we, why we are really aggressive in, in addressing these, uh, these limited outbreaks. So um, what, what- what should people do when they, they suspect this? And I know you talked about uh, keeping their, their poultry, their backyard coop, so to speak, uh, separate from the wildlife. But um, signs of this avian flu and, and then uh, who to contact? 
so the symptoms are, you know, really, really sick birds. So, uh, but that, but so a lot of times an owner might find mortalities. So they might find one or two birds dead uh, without any prior signs. But if they are, but if they do see symptoms, um, they would include swollen head, uh, sometimes what we call cyanotic or kind of bluish comb or legs, a diarrhea, a conjunctivitis. Um, even vomiting. Um, so, it, you know, these are really ill birds. And so what I would, uh, what I would recommend to, to your listeners is to uh, call their veterinarian uh, right away regarding a uh, significant uh, increase in illness or, or death. Uh, if, if they're not working with a veterinarian, then please call the Montana Department of Livestock. Um, our number is 406-444-2976 that you can use to reach to the calls regarding dead birds, dead poultry. If you have, uh, if you see dead wildlife, so dead wild birds, those, those calls would need to go to um, FWP or Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Oh, okay, that's, that's good to know. How, how long? You, you, you know, this is not the first outbreak, and as you said, every once in a while, maybe there's a mutation that leads. Um, how long do you, does it take to sort of, I guess the word I use is walk through this? So, you know, we're using the 2015 outbreak, which was the kind of the last uh, analogous year or similar year where we had a nationwide um, kind of uh, high path avian influenza transmission outbreak. And really, the the last cases uh, ended at the at the kind of the first week of June. And so we know that as summer progresses, not only do the do the migratory birds kind of find their find their way. Um, and oftentimes leave the state of Montana, but also the climate gets warmer. Um, this virus survives, it does not survive nearly as well when it's warm and dry. And so that also helps um, kind of works to our favor. Understood. Um, since, uh, since you're here, what else is going on at the um, Animal Health and Food Safety Division? <laughs> oh, my. Um, so the... Um, Really, this uh, the avian influenza has been kind of eating our lunch. You know, we've yeah. been we've been really uh, focused on making sure that that we uh, are able to eradicate the disease. Um, once you find a detection, then you will have to work with the owners to to uh, confirm that depopulation has taken place. Then we either work on making sure that there's sanitation or or cleaning and disinfection, what we call virus elimination procedures that are taken care of on those premises. Um, or backyard poultry folks leave those houses fallow, so they might not repopulate this year. So, really, that's a lot of of, of what our what's been on our desk. Um, of course, we're always dealing with with brucellosis issues, mm-hmm. with uh, with elk, um, and and uh, you know livestock and testing livestock in southwest Montana. Um, you know, last fall we've had a we had a tuberculosis outbreak, uh, one probably our first in maybe 50 years or more where we had. A, a, a herd, a cattle herd affected. So uh, it always seems to be something. And and can you update us on that? I, I recall that that outbreak, and uh, uh, but it, it seems like it was rather um, uh, rather specific. That uh, and I, I have not heard that that has caused any more trouble. Yeah, fortunately, we uh, we that, that outbreak was limited to one herd, uh, but we've. Uh, with that one herd, it was a good-sized herd up on the High Line. Um, there are there's a lot of testing that, accom- that accompanies that detection. So, um, you know, we, what we what you wind up having to do is you when you find a positive cattle herd or or another species, you have to make sure that the disease hasn't spread. 
to other to, to other premises, other herds, and you have to and you try to find out where it came from. So what you do is you wind up tracing or or, or testing cattle herds that may have sold animals into the positive herd, and then you wind up having to test uh, cattle herds that that received cattle from the from the affected herd in in uh, in the previous five years. So we had over 10,000 head of cattle to test. We, we completed a lot of the high-priority kind of um, what we call traces last fall, but we have a fair number left uh, that we will be doing this fall. Understood. Uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate you, you know, uh, giving us a quick call, too, and, and uh, being available to talk about this. And, and uh, anytime there's things going on, I'd love, love to hear from you, Martin. I appreciate it. Thanks so much.